Turn with me to the book of Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. And I want to ask you a question as we get going today. Um, just a, a question to think about for you to, to ponder on for a minute. What makes you angry? What makes you mad? What makes you upset? What makes you, you know, just get to that point of, man, I gotta, gotta do something about this, right? Is that the referee that doesn't make a call or makes a call that he shouldn't? Is it the friend who forgot lunch or maybe it's the driver that cuts you off in traffic on the way in in the morning? Maybe it's the uncleaned bedroom of one of your children, the price of gas or telemarketers or people on their cell phones when they shouldn't be on their cell phones. What gets you angry, mad? Like, Pastor, I really don't need to begin to think about those things at the beginning of a sermon, all right? Now, let me ask you a question. What made you really mad last month? Or better yet, three months ago. What was it that you just got mad about three months ago? It's hard to remember sometimes, isn't it? Because sometimes what we get mad about is not that important. In fact, sometimes we get mad about something and then we don't share it immediately and we kind of forget why we got mad. I read this week about a wife who used to get mad at her husband during the day and when the husband came home from work at night, she would say, I'm mad at you about something, I just can't remember what it is. And so on a day when she got mad at her husband, she would take her ring and she would move it to her other hand and then she would write a list down to say, now I want to remember why I'm mad at you and here's what it is. The truth is, psychologists say that there are two reasons that most of us get angry. Two big reasons. One is we have a violation of our expectations. Something doesn't happen like we think it should happen. Or secondly, there is a blockage of our goals. We don't get what we want. And so the truth is most of us get angry because something doesn't go our way. Or we don't get our way. And I think about that even as a dad, as a parent. A lot of times when I get angry with my kids or I get upset with my kids, I'm not just upset, I'm not just angry because they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, even though what I've told them to do would be good for them. Most of the time I'm angry because they won't do what I'm telling them to do, even though it would be good for them. Like, most of the time it's not just about the fact that I'm giving them something for their benefit. I'm just kind of upset they won't do what I've asked them to do. In fact, some, some uh, researchers said that about 90% of our anger comes from times when we just don't get our way. And when someone gets in the way of us getting our way, they best get out of the way. Let me ask you another question. What made Jesus angry? And we talk about Jesus a lot. Obviously here, Jesus is the center that we have placed our trust and our faith in. But we don't talk about Jesus in anger very much. But the Bible tells us he got angry. The Bible says he got angry. It tells us he's completely human. And so sometimes even when we think of anger, what we think of anger is always bad. But if Jesus was angry and Jesus never sinned, it means there must be some things it's okay to get angry about. And it might be good to know, okay, what is it that differentiates how we get angry versus how Jesus got angry? And here's what I'll tell you. I mean, maybe you didn't even know Jesus got angry. I mean, our pictures of Jesus oftentimes are this meek and mild, gentle man with, oh, you know, the halo glowing behind him. It's hard even sometimes to imagine Jesus angry. I mean, it's hard to imagine Jesus in any way. Most of us, our image of Jesus is off no matter what we think of. He's too short, too tall, too dark, too light. 
What our image of Jesus is, I was, we, I was teaching, um, I'm teaching at Union, and uh, I don't even know how we, I'm teaching Old Testament, so I don't even know how I got to this discussion of Jesus, um, what he looked like. And, and they were saying, they were asking all these questions. I said, well, you realize Jesus was probably somewhere between four, six, and five foot tall. I mean, just if you look at the average person of that day, male, Jewish male, they would have been about four and a half feet tall. And my guess is when you picture Jesus, you don't picture him at four and a half feet tall, right? We've all got these images of Jesus that just aren't right. But Jesus' anger is different than ours. Jesus never got angry because he didn't get his way. The question is then what did make him angry? Look at Mark chapter 3. We're going to follow a story today. Some of you have heard. My guess is, by the way, if you are somebody that grew up in church, you've been around the Bible, and I ask you about Jesus getting angry, there is one story that comes to mind. And my guess is we're going to get to that story in a little bit, but that's not where we're going to start. We're going to start with a story that you probably didn't think about when I said Jesus got angry. It's in Mark chapter 3. Starting in verse 1. It'll be on the screen if you need it. It's also your Bible in front of you. If you want to look there. If you've got your own Bible or app on your phone, turn there. Mark chapter 3 verse 1 says, Jesus entered the synagogue again and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. Now we're going to stay here for a minute because I want us to think about a couple of questions or a couple of ideas that come out of this. And the first is, we see at the very beginning, Mark chapter 3, that Jesus entered the synagogue again. Now, I asked the first service this question, they got it right away. I mean, you look like you've got an extra hour of sleep today. You look like you're with it and you're good, alright? If we're in Genesis, I mean, if we're in Genesis, I obviously didn't. If we're in Mark chapter 3, verse 1, how many chapters of Mark have there been before this? Man, look at y'all, sharp, right? Ready to go. Now, some of you didn't answer. That's just because you didn't want to look smart in front of everybody. I got that. All right. And so Jesus entered the synagogue again, means he's already entered the synagogue before. And Mark, it's a regular occurrence of his. He would go in, he would teach, he would instruct, and people would hear him and be amazed at his teaching. And as he's in the synagogue, there's a man who was there with a shriveled hand. Now, we don't know why he had a shriveled hand. We don't know what caused it. We don't know if it was a birth defect that had been there since he'd been born. We don't know if perhaps he was an accident. They, people worked with their hands a lot more than we do today. We don't know if there was an accident in construction or something he was doing and it called us to atrophy because he couldn't use it. You know, they didn't, they didn't have like modern day, um, x-rays and radiologists and sometimes you broke something. It meant that you just never got the use of that hand back like you did before. What we do know is that he is there at the synagogue with a shriveled hand. Jewish mindset was always that if you had some deformity, either from birth or if you had some deformity from an accident, that it was a curse of God on your life. And he would have been someone that people would have looked at and gawked at and talked about and said things about and would have been surrounding him this aura of don't get near. We don't know how he revealed his shriveled hand to Jesus. We don't know if Jesus knew about it. We don't know kind of what the scenario is. But the scene here is that Jesus is in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And there's a man there who had a shriveled hand. Next verse. In order to accuse him, they. Who's they? Who's they? I hear lots of whispering. Who's they? 
Pharisees, teachers of the law, scribes, right? They're people that were the religious establishment of the day, the leaders of the synagogue. In order to accuse him, they're watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Now, this is a big deal at this time. The Sabbath was holy, revered, separate, different. And there was good reason for that, right? Why was the Sabbath so important to them? What happened in the Old Testament made the Sabbath so important? Ten Commandments, right? And even before that, on the seventh day, God rested. And the idea is that we're to rest like God. Then you get to the Ten Commandments. And the fourth commandment is to keep the Sabbath holy. Like, it's not just in the top ten. It's in the top half of the top ten. Don't have any other gods. Don't make any idols. Don't take the limb of the Lord in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And so they had this idea, okay, we want to keep it holy. We want to make sure we keep it holy. And so they began to ask themselves the question, what does it look like to keep it holy? And the only way we know to control the situation so we know we're doing it correctly is to make a list of do's and don'ts. And their list of do's and don'ts went from 10 to 15 to 50 to 100 to a couple of hundred to three or 400 to somewhere around five or 600 different do's and don'ts on the Sabbath. One of the first things you would have learned when you were in school learning about the Bible is when you got to that whole remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Oh, we've got an extra edition of your textbook for you with the 600 rules about the Sabbath. And one of those was you could not work in any way. Whatever your work was, you could not do it. And so they're watching him to see if Jesus would violate the Sabbath because they've got a problem. Jesus is turning their world upside down. And I've got to figure out how to control that. I've got to figure out how to take care of that. I've got to figure out, what are we going to do with this Jesus? And if we could catch him on a technicality, then we could do something about him. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether they would heal him on the Sabbath. Next verse. He told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. Now, I don't know a whole lot about this man. We know very little from the scripture. But what I can almost assuredly tell you is this the last thing that this man wanted to do. He'd been ridiculed. He'd been made fun of. He'd been hiding. He didn't want anybody to know. He walks into the synagogue. He's hoping to hear Jesus. He's hoping that Jesus maybe could do something. But it'd be nice if he could be over here in private. We could have a conversation, Jesus. He is not wanting to walk up in front of everybody so that they all could see him. You ever been in one of those spots where you've kind of been singled out? Made to stand up. Some of you may be guests here today and you're like, oh, I hope he's not about to make us stand up, right? Like, don't do this in front of everybody. I've told this story before in a different setting with a different kind of ending, but um, I remember when I was doing Crosspoint over 20 years ago, I was doing Crosspoint Sports Camp. Uh, one of the things that happened is we traveled every weekend for the first four or five, and then we settled in a place for five weeks. My roommate that summer was a red-headed, pale-skinned, boy from the backwoods of Kentucky named Kenny McKinney. All right? Kenny McKinney from the backwoods of Kentucky. Great guy. Unbelievable guy. He's my roommate. We moved into a room. We're there for five weeks. Now, for five weeks, when we finally found a station, because we had traveled other weekends, back then, uh, the, the camps only ran from Monday to Friday. So you had the weekends off. And so we would do camp Monday through Friday. People would leave Friday. We would do something um, Friday afternoon, picking up, getting everything together. Saturday was kind of a free day. Sunday, we'd start getting ready for the next day of camp after church. 
And so we got to Marion, Alabama, Judson College in Marion, Alabama. We got out the yellow pages. Have you remember the yellow pages? Y'all remember those? Big book, you had to look up stuff. And we went to churches. Now, Kenny McKinney from the backwoods of Kentucky was a guy who was, even though he was working at a Baptist camp, he was Methodist. And we were going to plan out where we were going to church over the next five Sundays. And he said, well, one week we got to go to a Methodist church. I said, I'll give you one. The other four, we're going to, hopefully the other four are counteracted, all right? So he said, I want the first week. I said, fine, we went to a nice Methodist church. So the first week, second week, we went to um, uh, what you could imagine every small southern first Baptist church looks like, feels like, is like. That's where we went. The third week, we picked the next Baptist church in the middle of it. We didn't have the internet back then. We didn't know anything about these places. So we see Baptist church. It went about a half a mile from us. We think that's where we're going this week. And we walked in, and it was an African-American congregation. Let me just tell you this. It was the best church service I had by far that summer. Unbelievable preaching. Great worship. But me and red-headed, pale-skinned Kenny McKinney were obvious that we were not members of this particular congregation. And at the visitor welcome time, they said, do we have any visitors with us today? And every eye in the place went to us. And then they had us stand up. Y'all stand up. Tell us where you're from. We're glad to have you today. What you're doing in Marion, Alabama. I got the sense real quickly, Marion, Alabama was not on the tourist uh watch list for people going to all right so anybody in like what are you doing here was kind of the question and so we stood up to discuss and kenny mckinney who was older than me decided he would take the lead and he may have been from the backwoods of kentucky but his accent sounded like he was from deep south alabama and he began to talk and it was one of the most uncomfortable introductions i've ever had in my life the guy with the shriveled hand feels like kenny mckinney from backwoods kentucky Stand up. Get up here, man. He gets up there. Jesus is there. Pharisees are watching him, waiting. Jesus knows what they're saying, and so he asks them a question. He said to them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? To save life or to kill? Is it lawful? Let me just ask you guys a question. We got our friend up here, shriveled hand man. Nice to see you. Good to have you here. Let me ask you a question because I know you're all thinking about it. Would you rather me do good or evil? Would you rather me save a life or kill it? I love it when Jesus starts asking the questions. Because there's an obvious answer to this, right? Now, if your kids walk up to you and say, Dad, would you like me to do good this afternoon or evil? Now, we might have to have a discussion in their minds what those two things are. But if the answer is good or evil, we're going to say, good. Dad, Maddie walks up to me, precious little girl, would you rather me save a life or kill it? Like, the obvious answer is, unless it's a snake or a spider in our house, the obvious answer is what? To save. So when he asks religious leaders in church, is it better to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? Is it better to save a life on the Sabbath or to kill? Is the law of God about helping people or hurting them? Is 
God's desire that we use the laws that he has enacted for us, that we read them in such a way, think about them in such a way, that we end up hurting people that he loves? Or could it be that maybe we ought to help the people that God loves? In the chapter right before this, in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, Jesus had said, listen, you ask about the Sabbath. God did not make the Sabbath for man, or make man for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. The idea behind that is God didn't make the Sabbath and say, now follow the rule because it's a rule. What he did is, you all need rest. Anybody here roll over and see your clock this morning and realize you had an extra hour to sleep? But didn't that feel good? One of the best feelings in the world. Like, you know why? Because most of us have way too little rest in our lives. We need it. There's an obvious answer to this question. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or would you rather me do evil? Is it lawful to save a life on the Sabbath or would you rather me kill it? All of these guys knew that there were laws in the laws within the interpretation of the law that told them, for instance, if their oxen fell into a ditch on the Sabbath and was in danger of his life, they could help the oxen. What he's really asking them here is, would it be better to save an oxen or to help this man? If it's okay to save your ox, why can I not help this man? This is an obvious answer, right? The answer is to do good and to save a life. Look what they say. They were silent. Now, why didn't they answer? Because there's only one answer, and that answer lets who win? Jesus. And these guys are committed to not letting Jesus win. They're not... Letting him get away with this. They cannot answer and let him win. They cannot answer and let him win. And so they, in their pride, they stop and say, I can't do that. I can't say it. They're just silent. They don't say a word. Let me give you a kind of a big point, big picture kind of moment. When the application of scripture that we have conflicts with the intent of the author of scripture, We have the wrong application. When our application of what the Bible says does not match up with what the author intended. Who's the author, by the way? Big A. It is God. Then we have the wrong application. These guys were applying the Sabbath law in such a way that it was conflicting with the intent of what the law was written for. And as a result, they had the wrong application. Here's Jesus' answer. Look at this. After looking around at them with anger. That word, by the way, is the softest way to translate the word that is in there. The word that is used here in the original language means anger, indignation, a settled disposition of dislike. Or even, it is the word often used when translating the Old Testament for God's wrath. After looking at them with the wrath of God. Now let me ask you a quick question, okay? If you're here and you've got a spouse, um, do you know what it's like to see them mad at you? Now, I'm not asking if you know why they're mad at you. That's a whole different discussion. But do you know what it's like to see them mad at you? Like, oh, something ain't right here. Like, and guys, we start cataloging like, what did I do? Yes, no, no, oh, maybe that, maybe that. 
Yeah, definitely that. Okay, we got, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, ooh. Okay, she's, she's mad, right? Can you imagine Jesus Christ, pure in every way, including the intensity of the emotions that he is feeling? Can you imagine what it would be like to have him look at you with righteous wrath? But notice why he's mad. This is why he's mad. He was grieved at the hardness of their hearts. He's mad because they don't get it. They've established a religion that disregards the very people that God loves. Their pride was one willing to admit what was happening and what they knew to be true. He asked them a straightforward, simple question, and their agenda would not let them admit that they were wrong. So he's mad. He's hurt. The word grieve there means a deep emotion of hurt. Because they just don't get it. And he tells the man, stretch out your hand. I don't know. I don't know a lot about this guy. But my guess is there was a little bit that this guy was like, you want me to do what? That's the source of my shame. I hide it from people. I don't want people around. You're asking me to stretch out my hand. If you've read the story or you kind of know anything about Jesus, you know what happens, right? He stretches out his hand and his hand was restored, made whole, complete again. Now, I know that y'all aren't really what you call an amen type of congregation here. And sometimes I'll say things like, well, that'd be a good place for an amen. I'm not saying that in light of what I'm saying here. But if you were in the congregation that day and Jesus had called a man up who had a shriveled hand and he says, stretch out your shriveled hand. And the guy puts his hand out and when he puts his hand out, he goes from shriveled to complete and whole. I'm going to tell you what, if you're in that worship service that day, that is an amen in kind of moment. That's a clap your hands kind of moment. That's a dance in the aisle kind of moment. Remember, it's a Jewish synagogue, not a Baptist church. It's a dance in the aisle kind of moment. That would have been celebration worthy. And so when he stretches out his hand, the Pharisees go, well, goodness, that is awesome. Look at what Jesus did. Give praise to God for what has happened in our place today. Is that what they did? Mm -mm. Look at it. Look what they did. Immediately, how long did it take? Immediately. The Pharisees went out. Like, we can't handle it anymore. Like, we tried to trap him and he got around us and is worse now. And began to plot with the Herodians. That's the people loyal to Herod who was the Roman ruler. Against him. How they might kill him. Can I tell you this real quickly? And this is true for us as much with the Pharisees when we're honest with ourselves. Jesus' version of religion is really uncomfortable. It is very uncomfortable. It is terribly uncomfortable. Because it does not give us a list of things to do and not do to make us right with God. We want to control the environment. These guys had written 600 rules about the Sabbath so they could keep the Sabbath. And in one encounter, Jesus blows it up because he's helping a guy and says, isn't that what we should do? Jesus blew up a thousand years of writing on the Sabbath in a simple, few-word conversation. When we truly follow Jesus, it is an uncomfortable way of life. 
We want a faith that tells us exactly how we line up with God. We don't want necessarily a faith that tells us how we treat other people. They were wanting a faith that said, this is who we are, and as long as you follow that, you're good with God, and that's all that matters. But God is telling them, showing them, Jesus is demonstrating that if you can somehow be right with God and not right with your fellow man, then you are not right with God. It's not Christianity to say, here's my list of things that I get to do in order to be right with God. Christianity is when we live and think the way Jesus lives and thinks. And when we think we can mistreat people and still be right with God, we are fooling ourselves. Jesus taught the opposite and it made him angry when people use the law of God to disregard people that God loved. In fact... When people use the law of God to discount people made in the image of God, Jesus was quick to remind them that they were on the wrong side of God. Let me ask you a quick question, okay? For those of us that are Bible believers, people that believe God created everything, what percentage of humanity, of human beings, are created in the image of God? Everybody, right? All, 100%. And so anytime we use our religion, we use our faith, we use our belief in Jesus to discount, disregard, dishonor people made in the image of God, then we are on the wrong side of God. That doesn't matter if they're our enemies, that's not a matter if they believe like us, if they look like us, if they live like us, if they have as much as us, if they live in the same place as us, if they live in different places around the world. Anybody that we discount means we are violating the very intent of God. Jesus got angry when people use religion to block the way of reaching people and healing them. Jesus got angry at religion that tries to value God without valuing what God values. Jesus got angry with religion that tried to honor God while dishonoring what God values. Jesus got angry at religion that tries to prioritize God while disregarding what God prioritizes. Because according to God, every person on the planet is worthy of love because he declares it to be so. And how we interact with our God is based in part upon how we interact with the people around us. When you become a parent, your assessment of people often changes. Because you now assess people's character a lot of times on how they treat your your kids. Even if you're not a parent, maybe you're somebody that's close to a nephew or a niece, and you treat people differently based on how you see them treating your kids. God says, do you want to show that you love me? And show me in how you treat people that are far from me, that are created in my image, that need me desperately. There's one famous time when Jesus gets angry in the Gospels, and that may have been where you were thinking over in Mark chapter 11. Verses 15 through 19. You can turn there. We're going to put it on the screen. But in Mark chapter 11, we see Jesus get angry. And here's what's interesting about it. It's two different kind of things, but it's the same idea behind both. They came to Jerusalem. This is the end. This is towards the end. This is after the triumphant entry. And he went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. Now, let me ask you a quick question. What's he throwing out? The people. He's throwing people out, driving them out. 
And he began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. So Jesus goes in. This is in the last week of his life. He walks into the temple and he just begins to throw stuff. He begins to drive people out. He is causing a commotion. And I, it doesn't use the word angry here, but this is the action of a man who is angry. And he gives them the reason why. Tell them in the next verse. He was teaching them. Notice this, okay? These are the words he's saying. But the way it's written, it also means that by throwing them out and turning over the tables, he's teaching them with that as well. Words and actions. Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Here's what's happening. Temple courtyard. There are special areas of the temple. And so there was the Holy of Holies right in the center. Only one man one time a year could go into that place. Outside of that was the place where the priest could go into the holy place. Outside of that was a place where the Jewish people could come. They could sacrifice to God. They could get right with God. And outside of the place where the Jewish people were was what they called the court of Gentiles. And in the court of Gentiles it was arranged so that people who weren't even Jewish but respected God, feared God, could come into the place, could buy and make sacrifices, could try to follow the God of Israel. And there were some people apparently that had set up out there to make it convenient so that they didn't have to worry about finding their sacrifices. But they were overcharging the people for the sacrifices for the Gentiles. And so here's what's happening. When he says, my house is to be a house of prayer for the nations, he says it's not just for you. It's for anyone that would seek, anyone that come. And when you start charging prices that are higher than you should, what you're doing is you're using the laws of God to prevent the people that God loves from interacting with me. It's the same idea. And what we see in the Gospels, what we see in the life of Jesus, that what makes him angry is when we try to say following him prevents us from loving those that are far from him. At the beginning of Mark, when he calls his disciples, he uses a simple word that is translated into two words for us in English. It is simply to follow me. And so if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we need to be people who live our lives, think, act, say, and do what God would have us to do. There are a lot of ways to do that, but I want to tell you that one of the easiest ways to do that is to live a life of generosity, to live generous lives. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to put some feet to that. We're going to talk about exactly how to do that. We're going to talk about that generous lives always means that we give a portion and that generous lives means that sometimes we make a sacrifice. And our hope at First Baptist, our hope through this season, even as we give, is that we can tangibly express our love for God by caring for people God loves. And we expect nothing in return. Three years ago, right about this time of year, I did a sermon called How to Be Rich. It's out of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 and 18. It's an idea that came from a guy named Andy Stanley, who's a pastor down in Atlanta, Georgia area. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 and 18, we're going to put that up on the screen. He says, instruct those who are rich in this present age. And the first hurdle that we have to get over here is that most of us in this room do not consider ourselves to be rich. Like, man, I'm glad he's getting on those rich people. But if you look at the history of the world, if you look even at the current world status, most of us in this room are in the top 1 to 2% wealthiest people in the world. 
If you look at the history of the world, we are by far like in the top 1% of the 1% of the wealthiest people in the history of the world. And so I know it doesn't feel like you're rich. But if you're driving a car and you've got extra income and you can take vacations, you're rich. I'm rich. We've got a church full of rich people. And he says, if that's who you are, and it is, don't be arrogant. Don't set your hope on the uncertainty of wealth. Don't put your, your hope in your security, in your 401k, in your pension plan, in your paycheck. Put your hope in God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. It's where he comes from anyways. And then he gives us some instructions. Do what is good, rich in good works, and to be generous and willing to share. As we enter into this season of giving, my prayer is that we would begin to figure out what it means to live generous lives. And I want to tell you about something that's coming up that we do here at First Baptist that um, I'm very excited about and proud of. And that is coming in December. I know it's not December yet. I know we're going to get to Thanksgiving and then we'll talk about Christmas stuff. But in December, we do something called the Day of Extravagant Giving. It's going to be the 10th of December. Let me just tell you, this is a day when we as a church take up a special offering, one day special offering And 100% of it goes outside of here to partners in the state, in the city, in the nation, and internationally for the spread of the gospel. We have some great partners we're going to be partnering with. IMB, International Mission Board, you saw the video of, is one of them. It's the biggest one that we always do. Here's what I love about what we do with that. Is over the last three years, we've given over $100,000 in three individual days. $33,000 $33,000 average a day. If y'all could just do that every week, we could do some really cool stuff, all right? Over $100,000 has come from this church to impact the nations, the state, the nation of we live in. We're going to do it again on the 10th. And we'll give you, over the next few weeks, we're going to see videos like we did at the IMB. We're going to see videos of places we're partnering with. Places like a church plant right here in the Nashville area. Places like the Next Door Ministry that some of our women are a part of. The Lynch Ministry in Lynch, Kentucky that's starting a church and using that to reach one of the poorest areas of the country. A church plant in Denver, Colorado that is just getting ready to get off the ground and needs some help kind of establishing itself in a place where 90 to 95% of the people do not know Jesus. The International Mission Board that is literally taking the gospel to the unreached people groups all over the world. We have some great partners and we're going to tell you about that. But what I want you to understand is that day is just a day that flows out of a life that is already being generous. And I want to be a church that's characterized by generosity every day of the year. Let's pray together.